You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Today's episode is another installment of our old Dead Guys series. This time we're going to focus on some of the life and times of Dr. Alistair McKenzie. I'm very pleased to be joined from Adelaide, South Australia, by the golf course architect, historian and author Neil Crafter. The Crafter family have a strong pedigree in Australian golf. Neil's father Brian was a golf professional and golf course designer. His sister Jane became a touring professional in her own right on the Ladies PGA Tour. Neil would also represent Australian golf with distinction in addition to following in his father's golf design footsteps. Crafter has been centrally involved in the development of the Mackenzie Chronology Project. During the course of this episode, we will explore Dr. Mack's life and times, focusing on his medical and camouflage career in the military, and onwards to becoming a golf architecture hobbyist. This hobby quickly developed into a career as one of the first batch of golden age pioneers that reimagined golf in England, Ireland, Australia, USA, Argentina and beyond. We're going to examine Mackenzie's formula for success, his 13 principles, the selection of competent local trusted partners, the utilization of the British and American golf construction companies for construction purposes of courses. These companies incidentally were operated by his brother Charles Mackenzie. Mackenzie's design legacy is more than the sum of the courses that he touched. He was one of the first to equate the visual beauty of a golf course with its underlying design. Through his writings, he has left a template and legacy that has inspired and motivated the likes of Tom Doak, Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw, Clayton de Vries and Pont, Crafter and Mogford Golf Strategies and many more. We really do hope you enjoy the show and that by its conclusion, you might have learned a little bit more about Dr. Alistair McKenzie. Many thanks for tuning in. Neil Crafter, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. How is your summer of golf progressing so far in Adelaide? Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. And uh, summer has been a little bit dismal so far in Adelaide. It's been quite cool and uh, um, not too much swimming weather. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we make the most of it. Excellent. Listen, I j- just before we get cracking with a few questions about yourself and indeed the good doctor, Alistair McKenzie, I'm interested to see that the cliffs development on Kangaroo Island has recently broken ground and slated for opening towards the end of 2024. Given the devastation that was wreaked by the 2020 bushfires in King Island, I was really delighted to hear this news. What do you think the addition of the cliffs to King Island will mean to the South Australian golfing landscape? Look, I think the, the, the cliffs will be a, um, a great addition to our our golf, uh, primarily, um, you know, Adelaide is the centre of uh, of golf in South Australia. We've got a number of good courses up the Riverland and down in the southeast of the state, but uh, Kangaroo Island is a, a bit of an uncharted uh, territory as far as good golf goes. And, you know, it's a terrific site that, uh, that they have, and uh, I think the cliffs will uh, encourage more golfers to come to South Australia and... Uh, that means more golfers uh, will want to play some of our better courses uh, 
here in Adelaide as well. So I think it's uh, going to be a, of uh, considerable benefit to golf in this state. Well, having had the pleasure of an extended trip to Adelaide in January 2020 and got to play a couple of your golf courses and sample a couple of your Barossa wines, mm-hmm. it really is super 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 place to base yourself for a bit of golf and a bit of relaxation um it's just that little bit more manageable size wise than maybe melbourne and sydney yeah we we like the size of adelaide um um it's sort of part way between a sleepy country town and a big uh, uh metropolis but uh you know we, we like the size uh, um of, of the of the city and um you know we're we're fortunate to have some great uh wine areas uh to the south and to the north of uh, of Adelaide, and uh, like you said, uh, um, you can have some uh, fantastic time visiting wineries, going to beaches, uh, playing some great golf as you did when you uh, when you visited. Listen, I'm sure many of our listeners know who you are. For those that don't, perhaps you could give us a quick introduction to help out those that have not yet come across Neil Crafter. Yeah, look, Shane. My uh, my background is uh, is is golf. My my dad was a golf professional. My uncle was a golf professional. My cousin was a golf professional. My sister is a golf pro. So you know, we've sort of been a, a, a golfing family, the Crafters. Uh, and um, from from my side, I um, played uh, representative golf uh, as an amateur for Australia and South Australia. Um, so I had a good amateur golf career, but uh, m- my dad encouraged both my sister Jane and I to get a, a profession behind us, and uh, I studied architecture and practice as an architect uh, for a number of years. Um, but then I was able to transition into golf course architecture, primarily with at the inspiration of my dad, who, um, as a golf pro, um, had to be a jack of all trades, teaching club repairs. Um, TV commentary and golf course design. So, you know, I watched him uh, um, drawing plans on the kitchen table after dinner. So uh, that was really my inspiration to, to to get into golf design. I guess, as you said, with Brian, your dad been a professional golfer and course designer. It's probably no surprise that both yourself and your sister Jane took quite successfully to golf. Just interested to understand what your earliest memories of the game are. My earliest memory is uh, when I was about four years old, uh, Dad took uh, my sister and and I to a little par three pitch and putt course uh, at North Adelaide on the banks of the Torrens uh, River and uh, we went out there for for a hit. And uh, I still remember to this day that Dad managed a hole-in-one on... uh, one of the holes. I can't quite tell you which one, but it certainly stuck in my memory. I thought, well, that's fairly obvious. That's what you're supposed to do. You aim at the flag, you've got to hit it in there. So fortunately, I didn't have too many holding ones in my career, just managed two. But uh, um, that was sort of my uh, uh, first memory of golf. That's some introduction to the game, an intro that it makes it look so bloody easy. Exactly. Uh, unfortunately, I I was later to find out that it wasn't quite so easy. You have to work pretty hard at it. There's that famous commentary by Wayne Grady many, many years ago uh, at the Open Championship. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, when contrasting a good day versus a bad day, 
He goes, you know, on the good day, you think you've all the questions. On the bad day, they've changed the bloody questions. <laughs> Listen, I'm just, I'm just interested to understand how you got interested in golf course architecture and the history of the game. Was that through your dad or did you have any other influences? The influence was certainly there from my father as far as golf course uh, architecture. But the, the, the history of golf is something that I, I kind of uh, took on on myself, uh, really, and I, I, since you know the the early days, I've become as I get older, I become more interested in the in the history of golf, the history of golf course architecture. Um, you know, collecting various things, in particular, collecting stuff to do with Dr. McKenzie has been one of my um, uh, collecting habits, I suppose. Um, but certainly. Um, um, the, the research into uh, early golf architects and early golf in Australia has uh, um, been something that I've uh, you know, harnessed over, the, over a number of years now. Given that we're here to chat about Dr. Alistair McKenzie, as you said, I should probably ask you a question about him. What do you think Dr. Mack means to golf in Adelaide and South Australia specifically? Well, look, he, he means a lot to golf in... Um, in South Australia, but if you did a poll of um, you know a hundred golfers, um, not too many of them, I suspect less than half a dozen would actually know the name Dr. McKenzie and understand who he was and what he did here in uh, his time in uh, South Australia, or more broadly in his time uh, uh, in Australia. So. Um, but for those that do know him, certainly they're well aware of the influence that he had on, uh, on, on golf design in this country. And it was quite significant. Yeah, and we'll get to the two and a half months that changed the continent mm-hmm. in, a, in a chronological order in a wee yes. while. Um, just like to take a look at the Alastair McKenzie Society and McKenzie chronology specifically. I know you've been centrally involved in creating the definitive timeline of Dr. McKenzie's life, which has been entitled the McKenzie Chronology, which I understand was developed through the Alistair McKenzie Society. What can you tell us about the society and the inspiration behind creating the chronology? Shane, in point of fact, there's actually two Alistair McKenzie Societies, which sounds a little bit confusing, but there's one that was originally uh, based in, uh, in America, but it's a worldwide group with a membership of around 15 clubs uh, from the US, Britain, South America, Australia, and New Zealand. That was set up in 1995. But then four years later, uh, a group of uh, clubs in the UK decided to set up the Alistair McKenzie Society of the UK. And that these are for clubs that can demonstrate a significant involvement by McKenzie in their design heritage. Uh, I think at the moment they have some 62 clubs as members and they also have individual membership. So under the auspices of that body, um, they commence the, the McKenzie Chronology Project um, and um, the 14th revision uh, was uh, the one that I first got involved with, but it was started by Nick Leaf of Al Woodley in Leeds and Bob Beck, who is the historian at Passa Tempo in, in California. And uh, in those days, um, you know, before um, searchable um, 
newspaper archives. You know, they had uh, a much harder time of uh, finding out information about uh, about Mackenzie. But in, uh, um, I guess, in the last uh, fifteen years or so, we've uh, been able to add significantly to the uh, to the knowledge uh, of Mackenzie's whereabouts and um, figure out what he was doing, whether it was in his private life or his work life. Um, you know, we now have such information that we know, you know, the, the time of trains that he caught to go to particular projects. We know whether he gave a, a, a lecture in the afternoon or the evening on a particular date. Um, you know, we know from newspaper archives that he and his wife were guests at a wedding and uh, what present they gave the bride and the groom. These sorts of things are just amazing uh, um, repositories of information and we've been able to glean, I guess, the, 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 the information in regards to Mackenzie's life and put it in a location where it's freely available to, to, to people uh, on the um, Alistair Mackenzie Society of the UK website. Um, you can download a free copy of the, of the chronology and uh, each time we do an update, uh, the new version is... Uh, um, uploaded. So, uh, yeah, it's a great resource. Maybe if we go back to where it all began, the 27th September, 1870, Alistair Mackenzie, beg your pardon, Alexander, to give him his Christian or his name, was, was born in Normanton, West Yorkshire. What can you tell us about young Alistair and the Mackenzies of Loch Inver? Well, Alexander was named after his paternal grandfather and he had no middle name. Um, quite a common Scottish thing to, to, to name the firstborn child after the paternal grandfather. Um, he was the eldest uh, living child of Dr. William Scobie Mackenzie and his wife, Mary Jane. Unfortunately, an older sister, Margaret, who was born in 1869, uh, died a month later. Uh, and then when Alexander came along, he was the first uh, uh, living child. Fortunately for us, he survived. Um, possibly he didn't live as long a life as we would have uh, all hoped. I'm sure he hoped to live longer than he did. But uh, um, when Alexander came along, he was baptised at the All Saints Church in Normanton. And then uh, more brothers and sisters arrived. William in 1872, Marion the next year, uh, Mary in 1875, and finally Charles in 1876. But all the children were uh, motherless that year because they're because uh, Mary passed away from heart disease. So uh, um, uh, at a later date, uh, um, their father remarried, uh, but uh, um, they had a young uh, uh, loss in their in their lives. Alexander was then educated at Wakefield Grammar School in uh, starting there in eighteen eighty one. So that's a, a little bit about the young Alistair. Um, Lochinver, um, it lies on the west coast of northern Scotland on a small sea loch from which it takes its name. Uh, the region was the Mackenzie clan's ancestral lands from around 1670 until the Battle of Culloden, and the title of the lands passed to lairds that had no real connection to the land. Um, Lochinver eventually came into the hands of the Duke of Sutherland. But Mackenzie's ancestors flourished and 
His grandfather, Alexander, in fact, became the Duke's ground officer for the parish uh, that contained Lochinver. And so the Mackenzies were able to indulge themselves in pursuits like salmon fishing, deer stalking, um, pursuits that were usually reserved for the aristocrats. And this enabled William Scobie to be uh, uh, sent to medical school. The Mackenzie family always considered uh, Lochinver home, even though they were living in, uh, uh, in Yorkshire. The good doctor would obviously follow in his father's footsteps into the sphere of medicine, at least initially anyway. And we will get on to his uh, post. Uh, and actually, interestingly, it would appear he only started really playing golf at the age of 28, despite obviously being, being a Cambridge and whatnot, studying, studying medicine. Just interested, having immersed yourself in Mackenzie's life, I'm just trying to get an overview as to how to get a feel for the sort of person he was. Yeah, you reliant on uh, uh, written accounts of uh, other people who met him, interacted with him. There is, a, I guess, a, there tends to be a thought of Mackenzie as a bit of a shameless self-promoter who would list a golf course on his resume if he just drove past it. So there's that side that he that he gets um, a bit of bad press on. Um, and while he was pretty good at promoting his services, my research has confirmed that all the courses that he claimed to have worked on in the various brochures that he uh, put out um, were, were in fact all true. He didn't just drive past them. He definitely worked on them. So... Uh, from contemporary accounts, uh, including ones from those few months in Australia, they depict a, a fairly jovial and friendly man, one who uh, played up his uh, his uh, Scottish heritage and his uh, and his Scottish brogue, certainly to um, um, to, to the benefit of uh, his golf course design, but. Um, he was certainly dedicated to promoting the game of golf and, and the ideals of strategic golf design and uh, in implementing those in a way that um, mimicked nature because he was very much on the, the lines that the work that was done by the best golf architects should be indistinguishable from nature and uh, he was um, that was one of his major... Um, tenants of his uh, of his design as a sideline he loved dancing and um, he won a number of competitions um, uh, with his second wife on uh, transatlantic liners that he uh, went to to and fro from Britain to America in the late 20s and early 30s so uh, um, something that you wouldn't suspect looking at him that he was a, um, a dancer but uh, was very good at it apparently a twinkle-toed devil, by the sense. Exactly. <laughs> I was interested, just in preparation for this chat, Neil, Joshua Pettit's Mackenzie Reader was published a couple of years back. And in the introductory session, there's a letter that Alistair's sister Marion wrote um, after he died, actually. And she posthumously remembered the good doctor as large-hearted, generous to a fault, hot-tempered, but no backwash from it. Quickly up, it was over in a moment. Indeed. A pretty passionate individual, by the sound of that. Yes, in, indeed. He, he certainly, um, I, I can imagine that he didn't suffer fools uh, lightly. Um, 
but I think that if there was um, um, some humour uh, and perhaps a glass of scotch, um, then he'd be uh, he'd be a happy man. While studying at Cambridge and Mackenzie, as we mentioned earlier on, unlike many of his golden age design contemporaries, was not actually a member of the Oxford and Cambridge Golf Society and was considered only an occasional golfer up to and including the age of 28. Golfers often assume that in order to design courses, one must either be an elite amateur or a professional golfer. Obviously, Alistair was neither of these things. Indeed, the same can be said for Tom Doak, David McClay Kidd, Mike DeVries or Ali McIntosh these days. Having been an elite amateur yourself, do you feel that it's easier for better players to appreciate the limitations of weaker ones or vice versa? Well, look, I, I think from, from, from my perspective, having, you know, I, I can still remember starting out in the game and I can still remember um, not hitting it very far and uh, the challenges that that brought, but I can also, uh, you know, re- remember playing, you know, high-level uh, uh, amateur golf and playing in uh, open championships with professionals, etc. So I think I can put my mind into both uh, the better golfers and the shorter hitting golfers uh, mindsets and you realistically you've got to be able to do both if you're going to be able to uh, design golf courses these days and that's sort of um, that's probably one of the major challenges is being able to um, provide courses that have sufficient interest for for the uh, the low handicap scratch marker who hits the ball an astonishingly long way these days and the shorter hitters who are probably reaching with their second shots where these longer hitters are hitting their uh, their, their tee shots. So that's certainly a, a, a challenge. But, uh, you know, I, I'm grateful for the golfing background that I've had and uh, I think I'm better off for it than, than not having it. Interesting that you mentioned the increased distance that the ball is going these days. I'm trying to recall, and it might have been a podcast with Sean Tully that I listened to some time ago and he was making the point that perhaps McKenzie design golf courses are a little bit more immune from needing redesign than other golden age contemporaries. Sean felt that McKenzie bunkering from say the, the 20s and 30s held up pretty robustly to the increased distance and, and courses in general. Would you, would you find that or would you have would you, would you, would you concur with that? Well, look, I, you know, there are certainly McKenzie courses that have been changed little over the years, but there are others, you know, take Augusta National. There's not much of McKenzie left at uh, Augusta apart from his uh, his routing. All the greens have been um, rebuilt. Every bunker has been rebuilt. Every tee has been rebuilt and some a number of times over. So, look, I, I don't think you can draw hard and fast conclusions from, uh, from that, but... Uh, you know, you take a course like uh, Royal Melbourne that was torn apart by Ernie Els maybe uh, 15 uh, plus years ago when he shot 62 in one round and people were saying, oh, my goodness, it's, you know, it's the end of the world. Uh, um, you know, Royal Melbourne is now defenceless, but uh, it's not really the case and it really depends upon how they set the course up and the wind, uh, etc. because, um, you know, the... The, the great courses like that, um, yes, they're on um, limited footprints, 
you're not able to be expanded to, to, to the length of, if you were building a, a brand new championship uh, uh, length course, given the distances that, uh, you know, the, 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 the top pros hit the ball these days. So, look, I, I think they hold up very well. Uh, uh, I think most of Mackenzie's courses um, have held up well over the years. Um, so, yeah, I tend to probably agree with Sean on that, uh, uh, on that front. From a design perspective, we might just have a quick look at how the Mackenzie's experiences during the Boer War in South Africa would feed into his creative process. So obviously he served in the British Army during both the Boer, Boer and the First World Wars as a medic and later as an advisor both to the Royal Engineers and subsequently as a lecturer at the Army Camouflage School in London. During the campaign against the Boers in South Africa, he became fascinated how they used camouflage to obscure troop positions and confuse the British enemy. You might talk about how Mackenzie used the principles of camouflage to the benefit of his golf course design career. Yeah, Mackenzie was um, massively influenced by what he saw during the the, the Boer War as a, um, he was a medic attached to the Somerset Light Infantry. And um, he, he saw that the, the, the Boers were not regimented in the way that they um, would, would use camouflage and they would use it in a way, as you said, to, to confuse and uh, disguise what they, what they were up to. But they did it in such a way that uh, you know, it all looked perfectly natural and undisturbed. And so the boars would uh, just sort of pop out of nowhere, um, literally, and, um, you know, they'd win skirmishes and, and battles this way. So it, it clearly affected him. And, um, you know, he was certainly looking at um, how, to, um, um, how to use it in, in, to his benefit in golf course design and ways to, to, to make golf holes more interesting. But to also, in, within that interest, to be able to trick golfers from time to time into with the use of uh, 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 visual perspective and um, methods to trick the eye, the trompe l'oeil uh, approach, make things look further away, make things look closer, etc. so that when you're hitting a shot into a green that a bunker might be disguised so it looks like it's at the front of the green, but might actually be 10 or 15 paces short of the green. Golfer would think they've carried the bunker and they come up and they, they find their ball short of the green. They haven't taken enough clubs. So these are sort of some of the devices that we're still using today uh, as golf course architects. We're still trying to um, mimic those, um, um, those, those elements that uh, people like Mackenzie introduced into his, uh, into his design. Um, what we need to remember is that between uh, his time um, in South Africa around 1901 and um, the, the commencement of, uh, of World War I in 1914, he'd already really established himself as one of the upper rank of um, uh, British golf course architects. Um, so he was very active through the years 1912, 13 and 14 
and the war probably couldn't have come at a worse time for, for, for him. It uh, um, just um, um, really got his business going. He'd been able to essentially go from uh, a weekend architect where he was working Saturdays and Sundays, uh, but in the week he was still a, a doctor, to be able to put his medical practice to one side and really become a full-time uh, architect and uh, World War One kind of uh, in, interrupted him, but um, you know he was um, um, first called up as a uh, a medical officer, uh, but he soon uh, pushed to get himself transferred into the Royal Engineers because he had the passion for for um, for camouflage and he he wanted um, to to try and um, improve the the lot of the, the the troops that were in the trenches and how to make better trenches that would um, um, confuse the enemy in the same way as the uh, the Boers had done to the British uh, back in South Africa. So that was really his passion and, and uh, that's, you know, really how he spent his war was uh, battling uphill against the bureaucracy of the, of the British Army who... Uh, had manuals as to how you uh, how you build trenches, uh, everything in straight lines, and as we know from Mackenzie's design uh, uh, ideals, straight lines are anathema. Um, you know, nature comes in curves. Apropos that utilization of uh, the theory of camouflage uh, in conjunction with golf course design. I recently came across two Twitter posts by Tommy Nacarato, which I believe illustrate the sort of visual devices that a camoufleur such as Mackenzie utilises as part of his design process and approach. I'll actually put a link to both tweets in the show notes if anybody is interested to take a look. Maybe we can take a look now at the All Woodley project. As you said, Mackenzie at the time is essentially a part-time architect still sorry moonlighting as an architect but still still having the medical job at midweek and the main source of funds as, as it were he was a member of both headingley and leeds golf clubs however his increasing understanding of golf course architecture unsurprisingly seems to have led to a number of disagreements between mac and the respective club committees as to what should be done with, with their specific territories surprise surprise Mackenzie believed that Leeds golfers deserved better than what was available to them. This leads us to the start of 1907 and the formation meeting of the All Woodley Golf Club. What can you tell us about the machinations of the Good Doctor's First Golf Course Commission? Well, it wasn't really a commission for him, I guess. That really came with his, the, the next pro- project being, uh, being Moortown. He was never commissioned as the architect of uh, Al Woodley. He, he kind of took over the role, I suppose, would be the best uh, way of describing it. But the idea for, for a new course in Leeds came from a group of very prominent uh, Leeds men, uh, bankers, solicitors, doctors, architects. Um, and he, he felt passionately that there would be more suitable ground for another golf course in Leeds that was more gently undulating and had more suitable uh, subsoil for golf compared to the Leeds Golf Club's uh, course at Round Hay, which was quite rustic uh, on quite hilly land. So he 
he dedicated a number of hours to explore uh, around the Moortown and Elwoodley villages uh, and he eventually found a parcel that was uncultivated, covered in uh, moorland grass and heather, and it lay within Lord Harewood's estate. And his group um, set about leasing that land and formed the Allwoodley Golf Club in 1907. Uh, Mackenzie became their first uh, honorary secretary and he also held a role on the Greens Committee. Interestingly, the committee that they set up was... Uh, what they described as a permanent um, committee. And um, if you wanted it, it was your job for life. Um, so there weren't uh, regular um, elections as we suffer in most golf clubs. Um, or Woodley had a permanent committee and uh, if you wanted to leave it, yes, you could leave it. And then they, within that committee, they'd appoint a, a, a replacement. So you could go on for 10, 15, 20 years depending on how much you could uh, stomach uh, looking after a, 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 a golf club as, uh, as an unpaid committee person. Um, so what the, the, the committee did was to commission Walter Toogood, who was the professional at Ilkley Golf Club, uh, to lay out a course. And what exactly he did isn't really known with any certainty, but he more than likely staked out a uh, a, a layout uh, for construction to start. But Mackenzie and his friend Arthur Sykes, um, who was also on the committee, they were far from happy with the uh, initial course and they managed to persuade the, their fellow committee men to uh, agree to bring up Harry Colt from Sunningdale. And Colt really was, um, in those days, you know, really one of the few people practising as a golf course architect, albeit he was still um, um, managing uh, Sunningdale and uh, really only working as a part-time uh, architect. So in July 1907, uh, Colt came, uh, came up uh, to, to Leeds. He stayed with uh, Mackenzie at his more Allerton Lodge house uh, and... Unsurprisingly, Colt supported Mackenzie and Sykes' views on the layout. And um, while the committee initially agreed um, with Colt's um, suggestions, they um, soon after they passed some resolutions that were contrary to those uh, um, Colt's uh, suggestions. And they gave uh, Mackenzie and Sykes instructions as to the work that was going to be carried out over the winter of. 1907 and uh, 08. Mackenzie later recalled that none of the committee, fortunately, went near the course in the winter. And so he and Sykes were allowed uh, free reign, essentially, to do what they wanted. Um, their, uh, their greenkeeper um, um, didn't know anything about golf. He hadn't worked on a golf course before, so he didn't have any preconceptions. And so they were able to um, instruct him as they uh, saw fit. Um, so when it was ready for play in the spring, the committee um, first came out and, and saw the course and some of them were absolutely furious. Uh, Mackenzie wrote that uh, we felt that if we could hoodwink them into believing the artificial features we had made were, were actually made by nature, we could get away with it and escape their hostile criticism. But uh, 
they decided, well, if Mackenzie can have his expert in Harry Colt come, we'll get our own. And they brought up uh, Herbert Fowler um, and he, um, rather than criticise the course as they expected, he supported it and called the result a triumph for all concerned. So that kind of tended to squash the, um, the, the criticism, but uh, generally it was a, still a fairly um, difficult relationship going, going forward. Uh, eventually the, the, the course settled down, but, uh, you know, his, his first um, role uh, in building uh, a golf course was uh, fairly surreptitious in the end that he was doing it behind the, uh, the committee's back, but luckily he had a good idea about what he was doing and, uh, you know, the end result is there for, for all to see. One of his greatest courses was his first. Your previous comment there regarding the greenkeeper brings to mind flat greens and village idiots. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on to Moortown in 1908, obviously the next project that Mackenzie was involved in. And I think we really start to see some of his practical flair for marketing uh, in terms of what uh, happened, at least initially at Moortown. Only £500 had been raised from membership dues. Then. Obviously, this was not enough to build a good golf course to Mackenzie's mind. However, it was enough to build a great hole, which would attract additional members and additional funds, hopefully anyway. So Mackenzie resolved to build one hole, and that hole was and is now known as the Gibraltar hole. What can you tell us about Mackenzie's work at Moortown? Well, Moortown certainly was his first commission after his um, um, working his way into a debut at uh, Allwoodley. Another group of local men um, that Mackenzie referred to as tradespeople, even though they were perhaps not uh, doctors and uh, lawyers like the, the Allwoodley, but they were probably a little bit more uh, than, than trades uh, tradesmen. Um, they found this land. It was not far from Allwoodley. And uh, in October 1908, he first inspected it. He said he felt he could design a fine course on the land, but there were a lot of difficulties to overcome, uh, especially regarding drainage. Um, Mackenzie became a vice president of the new club, so he had a hand in all of these uh, clubs on the committee at Allwoodley, a vice president at, at, at Moortown. Um, he, he poached uh, George Franks from the... Uh, um, green staff at Allwoodley to be the new head greenkeeper. So I don't know how well that went down at uh, Allwoodley when he pinched uh, one of their good men. Um, so they began work on on getting some temporary holes um, in place so that they could at least be out there hitting some balls. But his Gibraltar hole was his first permanent hole. And... Um, built in the early first half of 1909. And like you said, the attention that it attracted, certainly um, nationwide attention, um, was sufficient to uh, get some excitement uh, amongst the locals uh, to join and uh, pay their membership funds. Um, Herbert Fowler again visited Leeds. Um, he looked at Moortown while it was still being built in uh, December 1909, he wrote about it in the Sheffield Telegraph and was also full of praise for it. 
Uh, I can say that a number of holes were sighted over a heather bog and much drainage work had to be undertaken to get a solid base to these holes and the turf for these came from a neighbouring field. Mackenzie, uh, with the help of Franks, devised uh, a horse-drawn turf cutting machine that could cut uh, around an acre of sods in four hours, um, much quicker than um, uh, you could do it by hand. Uh, and he, they also invented a mole drain that uh, was towed uh, behind a horse to make a drainage um, channel within the uh, within the soil, and that was around a tenth of the cost of doing it manually. Um, the committee there also arranged for Colt and Fowler to view the new course. In those days, it seemed like they needed to to get the the stamp of approval from these established um, architects like Colton Fowler um, for, for new projects both came through and expressed their approval. And then eventually the course was uh, opened in September of uh, 1910 to uh, quite rave reviews. So Mackenzie's first projects were uh, very successful and he was, um, he was on his way. I'm going to jump forward to 1913 and Sitwell Park. So my apologies to anybody out there that's looking to uh, hear about what Mackenzie was up to between Moortown and Sitwell Park. If you wanted the, the podcast to be six hours long, we might go through <laughs> course by course. We're not going to do that. But um, obviously Mackenzie was synonymous with what were actually colloquially known as Mackenzie Greens. Seemingly whether he himself had designed the greens or indeed somebody else who had similar design flair for green contours. The Sitwell Park Golf Club is located in Rotherham in South Yorkshire. It was home to one of Mackenzie's more colourfully contoured greens until it and a few more of its siblings were completely flattened. Many years later, Renaissance Golf would recreate the Sitwell Green on the 13th hole at Barnboogle Dunes in Tasmania. I don't know what all the fuss is about that myself and my, my mate both birdied that hole on my, my one and only trip to Barnboogle Dunes thus far. Just wondering what you can tell us about the most famous of the Sitwell Park Greens. Well, Mackenzie went over the top, I think is probably the best uh, way of describing it. The, the greens that he was building in, in 1913 were um, extremely contoured and... Um, they were built on, on quite um, steeply sloped locations and Mackenzie decided that the best way to build greens in, in spots like that were to break the greens up, make them large, but break them into zones. And essentially there might be five or six different zones um, within these bigger greens and each zone was, a, was a, quite a hollow separated from the next hollow by a ridge. And so you can imagine a series of, well, not quite bomb craters, but uh, near craters stretched up and around and over a, uh, over a large uh, green site. And if you were able to hit a good shot and it worked its way into the hollow, it may well finish within five foot of the hole, leaving you a nice putt for a birdie. Bit of a ran on the other shoulder and shed away from the the hollow that the pin was cut in. You might have to putt through another hollow up over a ridge, down into another hollow, two putts, three putts, four putts, or even worse. 
um, could be your fate. There was quite a, a debate in the um, uh, local uh, newspapers in Sheffield. Um, someone roundly criticised Mackenzie's Greens. He then wrote a letter to the editor. That person then replied. It ended up in uh, Golfing Magazine. They took up the cudgels as well on Mackenzie's behalf. So there was quite a, a, um, a to and fro with Mackenzie suggesting that, um, you know, these screens were eminently fair. But unfortunately, the, the, the facts of life were that, um, you know, he, he wasn't paying the bills. He wasn't a member of, uh, of these clubs playing them every week. And uh, fortunately, um, World War I intervened and saved his greens for a few years. But uh, early in the 1920s, around uh, 1921 and 22, they... Uh, modified uh, these greens at Sidwell Park. There were at least uh, four of them that were significantly contoured like this. Uh, I've identified the fourth, the 12th, the 15th and the 18th greens. And um, he also built one um, at an adjacent uh, course called uh, Renishaw Park, which was uh, the ancestral home of George Sidwell, who Sidwell Park was named after and had financed uh, um, the Sidwell Park uh, uh, Club. Uh, he built uh, a new green there, the ninth, and that was similarly uh, perhaps blighted by uh, uh, by these hollows. And um, eventually, they were they were all changed. And I think uh, you know we find the post-war Mackenzie greens are much more toned down, much more playable, uh, much more subtle because he'd built greens at Moortown and at Allwoodley that were, you know, the epitome of interesting, playable, puttable greens. And he kind of took his uh, his ideas, unfortunately, uh, he experimented with them and uh, um, they didn't really prove uh, successful and, uh, you know, fell by the wayside and he, he went back to his uh, more um, proven uh, um green designs after that you know it's it's humorous just to think and it's i suppose it's a recurring theme that sort of seems to echo through time a little bit apropos what happened a number of years after mckenzie revised lynch i believe the great old amateur john burke who was a member of lynch went out a couple of years after mckenzie left and flattened all of the uh, all of that lovely contour that mm-hmm. you spoke of as well yeah, and, and, you know, there was, uh, you know, you can look at that and say, well, they, they were uh, uh, Philistines for, for doing that. But, um, you know, back then, you know, five or ten years after Mackenzie had left, Mackenzie wasn't the revered figure that, uh, that he is nowadays. And, uh, you know, an original Mackenzie Green gets accorded, uh, um, you know, almost... Uh, archaeological sacred site status um, compared to a mere mortal's screen. And, uh, you know, in those days, you know, John Burke wanted to flatten the green. Well, they let him do it. If we move on to 1914 and and quite possibly Mackenzie's international coming of age somewhat, I kind of felt, given the fact that the Kaiser family are soon to open a reconstituted Lido 
course at the Sand Valley Resort in Wisconsin. I thought it was timely to mention that Alastair had entered a competition that the Country Life magazine ran during the spring of 1914. What can you tell us about this particular competition? Well, Charles Blair MacDonald, um, I guess really an American golf icon, one of the founders of the USGA, an early uh, US amateur champion, he was good friends with uh, Horace Hutchinson and Bernard Darwin, who wrote a regular golf column in Country Life magazine. And uh, MacDonald had suggested to them uh, that a, a design competition could be run under the auspices of Country Life uh, for the design of a two-shot hole, a par four in our terminology, that would actually get built as a hole on his uh, new Lido course on Long Island in New York. And the Lido was quite a marvel of, um, of construction with um, most of the uh, sand imported from um, uh, by pumping from offshore. Um, it was a, a, a very expensive and complicated uh, process. Um, and so Mackenzie put his design in. Um, his was a very elaborate design. It was a hole along the seashore that featured no less than five different lines of play, including one out onto an island. Um, the green itself was large and subdivided into three separate sections, perhaps not quite um, um, uh, Sibwell Park sections, but uh, big um, uh, differences in level between um, the, the three sections. And his design obviously impressed the three judges, Darwin and Hutchinson and um, MacDonald himself. Um, but the design did come in for some uh, criticism. Charles Allison, who a few years later would be Mackenzie's partner in, uh, um, in Colt Mackenzie and Allison, he described it in a newspaper review as a, a fantastical scheme that surely must have been drawn by the doctor as a joke. <laughs> um, but Mackenzie was in fact deadly serious and winning that competition gave him recognition across uh, across the UK and certainly into the US as well and McDonald did build uh, a version of the hole albeit somewhat modified as his 18th on the Lido course but um, sadly it was um, it was short lived but as you point out it's um, um, being recreated at Sand Valley and uh, as I understand the whole uh, course is now turfed and uh, won't be long before it uh, opens for play and we'll be able to uh, to, to, to go and play a, um, uh, a replica version of uh, Mackenzie's Lido design so that'll be quite amazing um, great job they've, they've done there to uh, uh, with Tom Doak and um, uh, the, the guy, I can't remember his name off hand, Peter, uh, Peter Flory, I think, um, who um, essentially recreated a computer um, model of, uh, of, of the course. So quite an undertaking. So uh, be worth a look, I reckon. Absolutely. And you mentioned Charles Hugh Allison there, which is a nice sachet into our next particular mm -hmm. section. Mackenzie was design partners with Harry Colt and Charles Allison between the years 1919 and 1923. 
Goth obviously boomed as it, as it seeped out of Scotland and into England, Ireland, Wales and beyond at the turn of the of the 19th to the 20th century. The early days of golf design in the 20th century saw a move to more inland properties in the UK. Historically, early inland courses were characterised by Victorian course design sensibilities that exerted ever-increasing levels of punishment on weaker and less accurate golfers. It's no wonder that through the influences of Lowe, Colt, Mackenzie, Fowler et al, the design in the name of golf became more interested in strategy, fun and enjoyment. What can you tell us about Mackenzie's four-year partnership with Colt and Allison? Well, I, I guess the first thing I can tell you is that even though it was four years theoretically, it had really broken up probably after three. Um, it seemed a partnership that was really destined for um, destined for failure. I think um, um, Mackenzie probably was more of a lone wolf than any of the other uh, partners. And um, I think it was certainly a, a partnership of convenience. I think uh, that's probably the best way to describe it. And I think they they felt that um, coming out of um, of World War One, that the best way to capitalise on the potential for um, new golf courses was to kind of make a super team, if you like, of uh, um, certainly Colton McKenzie is two of the best known architects. Allison, probably the least known of the uh, of the three, but uh, still a very talented and. Uh, um, dedicated architect in his own uh, in his own right there I suspect that uh, it started with good intentions um, Mackenzie said at the end that it was only ever going to be a four-year partnership but I think that's um, probably just a kind way of looking on uh, the fact that it uh, kind of had irreparably broken down probably by 1922 um, at the latest um, they were even instances of Mackenzie and Colt um, competing for, for jobs while they were still in partnership. So it seems uh, uh, quite a strange way of doing things. And it wasn't even a geographical-based um, uh, partnership, like saying, well, um, Alison, uh, well, you're, in, you're in London, so you'll take care of those courses. Um, Colt, where he was looking after his area, um, Alistair in the north and in Leeds, you look after the after the north. No, well, you know, Mackenzie was working had had a number of projects in London for the for the partnership, um, but there were signs of collaboration and cooperation between the three. Um, we've got instances of. Uh, uh, Mackenzie going to Scotland um, for some of his projects and spending time at um, in St Andrews doing some work on uh, remodelling of the Eden course at St Andrews and the new course that, uh, that were cult projects. So we've got instances of him um, doing inspections for, for cult uh, at times during uh, the Barry Golf Club um, that Mackenzie uh, designed. Um, we have uh, Alison coming along and doing a, a number of inspections when Mackenzie was busy elsewhere. And so there were certainly signs that, um, that there was collaboration, 
but on the other hand, it was, uh, I guess, uh, a difficult partnership to, to, to keep together. And I think Mackenzie um, um, wanted to, to, to get out and uh, I'm sure the other two thought about it the same way. And, um, uh, event, you know, officially it was broken up in 23, but uh, I don't think it uh, um, functioned as a partnership, at least for the last uh, year or 18 months. During the um, period of partnership with Alison and Colt, Mackenzie published his first book, Golf Architecture, Economy in Course Construction and Greenkeeping. The book, I believe, was repurposed content which was created for two lectures given to the Golf Greenkeepers Association in Leeds in 1912. It appears that the book was one of the very first published books on the topic of golf course architecture. What do you think we can still learn from this book some hundred years after its initial publication? Yeah, well, look, Mackenzie's book was, um, you know, it was his little green, his little green book, I suppose, his version of um, Jim and Mao's little red book. And and Mackenzie always had copies of this book on hand. You know, when he travelled, he'd give away copies to people and. Um, you know, it was sort of uh, his calling card in a way. Um, you know, certainly you'd find these days a number of copies that are actually um, autographed by him with the author's compliments that he's presented it to people, uh, to golf clubs, etc. So there was, um, you know, he, he used it uh, for, for promotion, but I think he was quite anxious after... Um, after World War One finished, to to get something out into the into the realm of uh, of um, a publication, uh, Colt wrote the forward uh, to it, and um, as you said, it was really the the text was really written before the war. There are a number of pre-war um, photographs included in it, a couple that are post-war, early sort of nineteen nineteen. Uh, type projects before it was put out in uh, in 1920, and and around the t- same time, um, Colton Allison put out a book. Mackenzie um, contributed a chapter to it on I think it was on labour saving machinery, going back to the um, uh, to the um, uh, uh, to the mole uh, uh, drain the drainage mole and the um, uh, Turf cutting machine that that he he wrote about. So all three partners essentially had a book out um, in those uh, early years, early post-war years. What can we still learn from it? Well, look, his thirteen points are, I guess, his most uh, uh, famous contribution. And if you go through them today, yeah, they're still very relevant. I think we can still learn a lot from uh, Mackenzie's thirteen points. And um, yes, yeah, some of them are perhaps a little bit dated, but you know, most of them, you know, uh, are, are still applicable today. He seems to be very adept in choosing or picking or collaborating with local partners, be that in the UK or farther afield. I suppose when you look at it, Harry Coat utilised the Franks Harris Brothers Company to construct his courses. Mackenzie obviously understood the need for consistency and control throughout the process of golf course construction. 
So much like the design-build approach in evidence today, he appears to have had a skill for both attracting and selecting local partners, who understood what he was trying to accomplish and could oversee a project and deliver it, because more importantly, after Mackenzie had left sight, often never to return. One such partner was his younger brother Charles, who would become managing director of the British Golf Course Construction Company with Alistair as a shareholder. His American partners would, of course, subsequently include Robert Hunter, Perry Maxwell, H. Chandler Egan and Bobby Jones, not to mention Alex Russell and the Morecambs in Australia. What can you tell us of Charles Mackenzie and how he fits into the good doctor's chronology? Well, the point that you make there, Shane, is a very good one. Mackenzie had um, an exceptional talent for identifying partners. And if you look at the, the partners that he um, that he worked with, um, you know, you see that they ultimately became, you know, great golf course architects in their, uh, in their own right. Um, certainly his, young, his younger brother, Charles, was um, uh, pre-war was involved in a landscape uh, company with um, a guy called James Nicholson. And they certainly had started getting involved in golf course construction uh, before World War One, and um, Mackenzie's Charles Mackenzie's firm certainly um, constructed uh, projects for uh, Mackenzie, but it wasn't really until he left the partnership that that the relationship really got uh, close because we find uh, a number of um, Mackenzie projects for the partnership were built by the Franks Harris um, firm. So um, we see that as Mackenzie started to um, become um, his own man and out of the, the, the partnership, that um, um, his brother's firm with him involved um, um, starts to, to build all of Mackenzie's courses wherever he can possibly get them uh, involved. And cleverly, that way he gets a, you know, he gets a cut of the construction uh, budget as well as the design budget. So, you know, it, it's, um, you know, we see some, as you mentioned, we see uh, similar things uh, happening today. So um, CA Mackenzie and Co., eventually changed their name to the British Golf Course uh, Construction Company. Um, it sounded a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, uh, upscale than just uh, naming it after, a, um, I suppose he probably disguised the, the McKenzie connection a little bit by, uh, uh, by naming it that way. Uh, they certainly, um, you know, they never built a project that wasn't a McKenzie design. Um, so, you know, if, if the, golf, the British Golf Course Construction Company or their, um, um, their, their future relative being the American Golf Course Construction Company, if they build a course, Mackenzie had designed it 100%. Mackenzie revered the old course. Interestingly, he made no changes to the course. And according to the life and work of Dr. Aston Mackenzie, Tom Doak's book, he positively discouraged any changes. I do know that in addition to the course survey, Mackenzie also gave input on championship pin position options for the old course. How did this seemingly brief appointment as consulting architect to the RNA materialize? 
And did Mackenzie have any other involvement with open rotor courses? Well, first and foremost, Mackenzie was an RNA member. He was uh, put up for membership, um, nominated by Harry Colt, in fact. Um, so, so he obviously was a part of that establishment. But he wrote a letter to the to the management committee proposing that uh, he would draw a detailed survey map of the old course uh, for a fee not exceeding thirty guineas. And uh, in December 1922, that offer was accepted. So between then and the completion of the plan in March uh, of 1924, Mackenzie must have spent a good deal of a good deal of time surveying the course and recording its features. But he was a very busy man at this time, and how he managed to find enough uh, hours to, uh, and obviously it wasn't just down the road for him. He had to. Um, make a trip to, to Scotland to, um, um, to to look at the old course. Uh, so it was quite remarkable that he did was able to uh, um, make the time to to, to make this survey. Um, it's known that he used two artists to undertake the final drafting of the plan. Uh, one of whom was his friend and colleague from the Royal Engineers Camouflage School in World War One, a uh, fellow by the name of Major Adrian Klein. Uh, Klein had actually drawn, um, well, would later draw uh, a series of Mackenzie's plans from uh, South America. Uh, so the plan was eventually presented to the RNA on the 12th of June in 1924. But by this time, Mackenzie had uh, thought about whether he should be charging his club a fee, and he decided very generously to offer the plan as a gift to the club instead. And this was gratefully accepted. And as far as I know, the plan hangs to this day in the secretary's office, unless, as you say, Martin Slumbers uh, doesn't like the look of it, but if he wants to get rid of it, I'll take it off his hands. <laughs> um, but apart from this contribution, we've not been able to find any evidence that he was appointed, you know, the consulting architect Um uh, to the RNA, and as you mentioned, he was philosophically totally opposed to making any changes to the to the old course. He revered it, and um, he couldn't think of any improvements that uh, that you could make uh, to to it. So uh, it's a, a short involvement, but really one driven by his love of the of, of the old course and. Um, the, the plan itself is magnificent. Um, it's huge. I don't know the exact dimensions of it, but it um, pretty much covers half a wall. Um, and, you know, the, 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 um, the reproduction that we see, the engraving, it really doesn't do justice to the original. It's quite, uh, um, it's quite remarkable, but you don't see it. Uh, I think it's... Um, a very well-kept um, um, secret, that plan. Um, but I have seen uh, images of it, and it's uh, a lovely rendering. You know, it would be remiss of me uh, as a proud Irishman not to speak about Mackenzie and his time in Ireland. And I guess it's sort of somewhat self-serving in that, having had limited exposure to Mackenzie courses thus far, it, it's a little bit easier for me to speak about things that I've I've seen and, and know where they are. Kenzie's former partner, Harry Colt, revised and built some of Ireland's great and best golf courses. 
Coat was originally introduced to Irish golf by his friend Cecil Barcroft, the then secretary manager of Royal Dublin, with whom he did some design work in France in 1911. Coe's Irish commissions would ultimately include Royal Dublin in 1920, Royal Belfast in 25, revision of Royal County Down in 1925, new course for in Beaver Park in Belfast in 1927, County Sligo 1927 also, and two new golf courses, the Dunluce and the Valley courses for Royal Port Rush from 1929. Then we get to Cork City, which is for geographically for those that are listening and don't know a huge amount of the geography of Ireland down in the sort of middle south of the country. Um, it appears that Cork City in the south of Ireland couldn't get enough of the good doctor and his able construction foreman, an Irishman by the name of Jack Fleming, who was born in Tume, County Galway in 1896. Dr. Mack would design four courses in Cork City over the years 1924 and 1925. Douglas, Muskery, Cork Golf Club and Monkstown. And to this day, the four courses referenced above are still the best four courses in Cork. What can you tell us about Mackenzie's time in Cork and how Jack Fleming fits into the Mackenzie chronology, both in Cork and farther afield? Mackenzie's first project in Cork was, uh, was Muskery. And um, August 1924, he arrived there. And then the other golf clubs got wind progressively of what Mackenzie was up to and... Uh, um, in June 1924, um, Cork heard that, uh, or Cork Golf Club heard that Muskerry was um, bringing Mackenzie over, so they invited him to have a look at the, uh, the course. And uh, then Douglas in October 1924, they invited Mackenzie to uh, look at their layout. And finally, Monkstown, they were the last to, to, to come on board. But uh, by this time, that all four had, um, you know, you've heard of the expression keeping up with the Joneses. Well, this was uh, really a case of, well, if they've got them down the road there, we better have him as well. Uh, we don't want to let them get a, um, too much of a, a head start on, uh, on, on our course. So it was very fertile ground, both for Mackenzie and uh, the British Golf Course uh, Construction Company. I understand that um, Jack Fleming was recruited um, in Manchester and he worked initially as a timekeeper for the company on the Cavendish uh, uh, golf course that they built for the Duke of Devonshire in Buxton. And then they brought him over to Ireland for all their Cork projects. Um, so he was in, in Cork for a couple of years. And after they wound up... Uh, Opportunities then arose for Alistair and his brother in the US and soon that formed the American Golf Course uh, Construction Company with uh, Robert Hunter's son, Robert Hunter Jr. as the, as the managing director. So all of the, all of the principal players in McKenzie's US project, um, McKenzie and Hunter and uh, his brother Charles, um, Hunter's son, uh, all had a hand uh, all had a hand in the trough, so to speak, of the of the uh, the money that was flowing for design and construction at this time in uh, in California. Um, Fleming had a major role to play as supervisor of some of Mackenzie's famous projects, including Cypress Point, St Charles in Winnipeg in Canada, and Sharp Park in California. And uh, Fleming um, remained at Sharp Park after it was built as the golf course superintendent 
and eventually he became an architect in his own right and was highly regarded in California. Um, but then, then Mackenzie did other projects in, in Ireland as well. There's a suggestion in the Cork History book that Fleming uh, worked at Eugle. I um, don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That would be y'all, but good try. Yeah, I'm just looking at it, uh, <laughs> uh, reading it as Eugle. But y'all, um, that sounds like you're from the South of America. You know, you say, hi, y'all. Phonetically, that would be the correct pronunciation. That's absolutely perfect from yeah. a pronunciation perspective. Yeah. So there's a suggestion that uh, Fleming worked there. And if Fleming worked there, there's a likelihood that it was Mackenzie designed that as well. I haven't really been able to confirm that much more. And then we've got Lahinch and Limerick. Um, but he was very active in Northern Ireland as well. You've got uh, Balmoral in Belfast from 1919, uh, the Knock uh, Golf Club and Malone Golf Club and Royal Belfast in Belfast. Royal County Down Ladies Course, he gave advice. And even before Harry Colt got to Portrush, he gave Port Royal Portrush advice on improving there and making the course uh, more difficult ahead of uh, 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 an All-Ireland Championship uh, scheduled for 1919. So um, his, um, certainly his time in, um, in, in Ireland, um, the, the Republic of Ireland and, and Northern Ireland was quite lucrative for him. No, for sure. And one of the jewels in his crown would most certainly be the revision at La Hinch in around 1926. Le Hinch was founded in 1892 when members of the Black Watch Regiment laid out the original golf course. Old Tom was involved and in fact designed a new course for Le Hinch in 1894 uh, and this new layout acted as a catalyst in the foundation of what is still known as the South of Ireland Amateur Championships which are still held at Le Hinch at the end of July every summer. Just interested to understand what do you know about what the works that Mackenzie was commissioned to carry out at La Hinch in 1926. Well, I think Mackenzie's brief at at, at La Hinch was to you know to to improve the golf course, and he he essentially uh, abandoned the holes that were on the inland side of the road, and he brought all of the golf course onto the seaward side. Um, and to, to, to do that, he had to go into June's land that hadn't seen golf before. Um, you know, if you look at some of the very early uh, photos of the establishment of, uh, uh, of La Hinch in, um, you know, the, the late 1890s, it's a very rugged and rustic uh, um, golf course. And Mackenzie, I think, was quite smitten by the, um, by the land that was unused at uh, at La Hinch, and so he set about, um, you know, designing some um, terrific golf holes. But there were some that were quite difficult, very some greens that were difficult to hit, and certainly received some some criticism from golfers um, in that. Um, you know, in that amateur championship, the South of Ireland, that uh, they played there each year. And so his his holes were, um, while we would like to have seen them all preserved in the form that they uh, um, were originally built, um, unfortunately the, the, 
um, the, the locals in, in, in John Burke um, got to them and um, softened them, um, flattened them, and um, you know it's a it's a shame that that happened. And um, you know, I think as you said, Martin Hawtrey's endeavoured to reinstate some of that uh, that influence, but uh, once it's lost, it's really lost. It's hard to it's it's always hard to recreate it from um, uh, impressions, I suppose. When I don't think it was terribly well documented, I've not been able to find. Um, um, there seems to be very uh, few, if any, photographs of the course from around this time. Uh, it, it's not something that uh, seems to have been well documented, uh, which is a shame because all we've got is some. Um, newspaper descriptions to go on um, as far as uh, what those um, what those holes were like. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Other noticeable, or two other noticeable courses that Mackenzie was involved with in Ireland. One is the Limerick Golf Club, where I believe he designed a number of holes. The balance of holes were actually designed by Commander John D. Harris, who interestingly began his design career with Frank's Harris Brothers Golf Course Construction Company that we referenced earlier on. As an aside, and I'm reaching a little bit for this one, but Harris also designed Wairaki in Taupo in New Zealand, and I believe he was an early mentor of Peter Thompson at the beginning of his, of his, his course design career. Now, one one question I have for you, and it's, it's, it's Galway Golf Club, and in some circles it's referenced as a cult, but others refer to it as a Mackenzie. Do we know who Galway Golf Club can be attributed? Yes, this has sort of recently been um, been resolved with some finality. I think um, Adam Lawrence, who's uh, writing um, uh, a biography of uh, Harry Colt and researching his courses, um, this was discussed uh, recently in a bit of an email chain with some uh, um, with some Irish uh, contributors as well. And um, it's pretty clear to me that um, it's a Harry Colt uh, design. Uh, there are a number of contemporary um, uh, sources by way of newspaper correspondents who um, uh, refer to Colt as, as the architect. And the only Mackenzie reference is a fairly obscure one uh, within the club history uh, to a past captain recollecting that... Uh, golf course architect by the name of Mackenzie was involved but uh, I'll take the, the, the contemporary newspaper references uh, um, as a um, trumping um, those other um, um, so, or that other source and uh, I'm very happy for it to be um, uh, attributed to Colt. Excellent well thank you very much for clearing that up. We might move on to the proverbial two months that changed the continent. Tom Doak's book on Mackenzie doesn't hold back on his hyperbole by describing the adventure as a two-month period that changed the continent. I wouldn't disagree with this tenant as long as you're a golfer and a shorthand for the subsequent impact that still resonates to this day. What can you tell us about Royal Adelaide and the site at Seton prior to Dr. Mack's arrival in 1926? Well, if I can just jump into back to your, your uh, first um, comment of uh, quoting uh, Tom Doak, that it was a two-month period that changed the continent. I think um, 
this was really the first visit to Australia by a, a recognised golf course architect. The previous architects that had uh, come out, well, they were really golf professionals. Uh, that come out around the turn of the century from Scotland and uh, golf architecture was never really their strong suit. And you had guys laying out golf courses who had some idea, but they were not of the level of um, design philosophy that, that, that Mackenzie was at by the time he came in, in 1926. And it would take until, I think, 1959 when... Uh, um, the American architect Dick Wilson uh, visited Australia for the Metropolitan course for another overseas architect to uh, uh, to influence uh, golf design in this country. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't think it changed the continent, but it certainly changed golf uh, on this continent and how uh, how we looked at golf courses. Royal Adelaide and um, their site at Seaton. Um, They'd they, they were amalgamated with the Glenelg Golf Club and playing on a very rudimentary course at, at uh, Glenelg. And they, the, the course was uh, leased and they wanted somewhere that they owned. They wanted to, you know, they had greater ambitions um, for, for their club. At that time, they were only the, the, the Adelaide Golf Club, but they still had uh, um, greater ambitions and... Um, they identified a site at Seton. It was um, sand dune land with flatter areas around it, swampy, some swampy ground, but it was certainly ideal for, 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 for golf. And um, they laid out a course in uh, around about 1906. Uh, and one of the prime movers of the move was um, uh, an Adelaide, a wealthy Adelaide um, uh, man by the name of uh, Herbert Lockett Rymel. And Rymel went on to become a golf course architect in his own right, the, uh, the, the, the founder and uh, designer of the Kuyonga golf course. He laid out the Glenelg golf course as well as the Grange golf course. And so his involvement in golf in uh, Adelaide is, uh, is quite significant, having had a hand in all four of our best courses. So the, the, the course at, at Royal Adelaide before Mackenzie arrived was seriously bunkered. It had hundreds of hundreds of bunkers. If in doubt, put in a bunker was kind of the, the, the mantra. Um, so it was very heavily bunkered. But it, there were aspects of the site, a couple of um, um, one or two sand craters that, that hadn't been used. And so, um, so Mackenzie set about using those elements better, but he made some, what I would think are fairly uh, basic errors in his design. He put all of the holes onto the side of the, onto one side of the, the railway line so you didn't have to, to, to cross it during your round. And unfortunately, the space that was there really wasn't enough for um, um, the, to safely put all of the holes. And so there were elements of his design scheme that were never, um, that were never incorporated. But there were other elements. They picked, essentially, I think they picked the, the eyes out of his scheme and they, they implemented the best parts. 
and left out the worst parts. So well done to the Royal Adelaide Committee of the day. I had the pleasure a number of years ago of, of spending six or seven days there and it's a phenomenal, phenomenal layout. So it is, um, you know, we, we have noted a recurring theme with Mackenzie seems to be the quality of his local partners that he was able to collaborate with. One such partner was Alex Russell, who would become Mackenzie's local Australian partner and the designer in his own right of courses such as Royal Melbourne East, Lake Karanup in Perth and Parapara Umu Links in New Zealand. Once Mackenzie left Adelaide, do we know whether Alex Russell or indeed Mick or Vern Morecambe ever went back to assess the implementation of the suggested improvements and perhaps suggest a few more of them for themselves? Well, Alec Russell was um, certainly out and about. He, he was one of the best amateurs in, um, in uh, Australian golf and had won the 1924 Australian Open at, uh, at, at Royal Melbourne. So, you know, he'd, be, he'd beaten all of the pros. So he, he played in very many tournaments across the country and certainly had um, played... Um, the, the course at Royal Adelaide after a number of the changes had been made and he was consulted by the, the, the club. They've certainly got uh, uh, records of him um, uh, visiting and um, writing reports about the, uh, about the course. But it was a number of years after Mackenzie's visit that he did that. It wasn't like he, he was there the next week to, uh, to, to implement it. Uh, the, the golf club... You know they they did the work on their on their own bat, and then uh, Russell came came in a number of years later to to, to comment on it. But uh, you know I, th- I think as I mentioned before, in in the case of um, um, in the case of Royal Adelaide, um, um, they did well in terms of implementing the best parts of his scheme and um, leaving out the worst. I know Tom Doak has been involved at Royal Adelaide over the last 10 years or so. How much revision has he undertaken? And is, has it been an effort to try and reconnect with some of those uh, those old sketches from 26? Well, look, um, I think we backtrack a little bit further to that. Mike Clayton um, um, was engaged to implement a... Um, a golf course master plan that he had based essentially on implementing Mackenzie's 1926 plan on the on the ground and you know yeah a recreation of it if you like and um, they they bit off a lot um, with this and they um, basically built a, an entirely new 17th hole replacing the par five that was there with a long par four based on, on Mackenzie's plan, and it was really not well received. It didn't seem to fit into the, into the character of, um, of Royal Adelaide and um, the members hated it. And um, as a result of that, um, um, Clayton's master plan was, um, was abandoned and uh, they brought in Tom Doak to redo that hole. And he, he, he redid it. And the work that he's done has certainly improved it, but I still personally preferred the par five that was there um, there before it. But um, 
That's really just a personal opinion. Tom hasn't done all that much work or his um, Renaissance firm haven't done all of that all that much work there in in recent years, but they have um, um, done some work in joining a number of fairways together, removing roughs and things like that. And I think the look of uh, Royal Adelaide has certainly uh, improved since his, um, his involvement. Maybe if we could take a look at some of your own work at Metropolitan in Melbourne. Mackenzie would visit the Metropolitan Golf Club during his short visit to Melbourne. And I understand that he suggested a number of modifications that were gradually implemented post-visit. Yourself and your design partner, Paul Mockford, are currently engaged with the Metropolitan Golf Club. What can you tell us about the work that your company, Golf Strategies, has undertaken since your appointment in 2015? Look, our, our appointment um, at Metropolitan has sort of been twofold. Um, the first stage, I guess, was... Um, to, to basically redo their entire practice facilities, which we've now completed. Um, it's taken a while, but we, we got there eventually. Uh, and the other um, project out on, the, out on the golf course was really to implement what we called a course enhancement plan. And essentially what we wanted to, to do with this course enhancement plan was to... Um, identify the strengths of, uh, of the golf course, identify the weaknesses and see how we can bring those weaker parts of the golf course up to the character of the remainder of the golf course because um, appreciating the history of, um, of uh, Metropolitan, you start to understand how the, the course was modified uh, a compulsory uh, uh, land acquisition for a, for a high school took some very good land and the replacement land that they got was uh, flatter, less um, had less character. They brought Dick Wilson out from America to, uh, uh, to design these holes. And while he designed some, um, some quite interesting holes uh, for the course, he wasn't involved in the implementation. He was back in America doing his thing and the club themselves were, were building these changes. And unfortunately, they never really quite got the, um, quite got the balance um, right. And um, really our, and there'd been a number of changes uh, to, to these holes over, over time. Some have improved things, some haven't. And um, really our brief was to, to, to try and um, unify the course better so that you, you know, when you're playing some of these back nine holes, you don't feel like you're um, on a sort of a second grade uh, metropolitan, but you're part of the, um, the feel and character that you see on uh, most of the front nine. Um, when I was over in Australia, I actually had the pleasure of playing golf with somebody you might know from Metropolitan, Campbell McIntosh, who I believe is involved on the uh, the Greens Committee or the Links Committee. I'm um, interested to understand, I believe you were trialling some grass varieties in terms of uh, potentially changing the um, grass variety on the greens in Metropolitan. Is that yes, I've been considering that for a number of years and I think they're getting closer to, uh, uh, you know, a total... Uh, greens reconstruction and uh, reprofiling and re-turfing. Um, um, 
this is my partner, uh, Paul Mogford, that this is his project because obviously he's uh, just down the road from uh, from Metropolitan. I don't get over to uh, Melbourne all that often and certainly in recent years with COVID, uh, travel has been very difficult between uh, uh, between states in, in, in Australia. But uh, certainly we're, we're hoping that that work will, uh, will happen in the next um, um, six months or so. You know, I'd just like to take a quick look at Mackenzie in South America in the 1930s. Obviously, people will probably be aware of his work or at least uh, have heard about his work at the Jockey Club of San Isidro in Buenos Aires and Club de Golf del Uruguay in uh, in Uruguay. I'm kind of interested just maybe to take a look at the plans which I read about in the Thomas Dunn article on the plans developed for Enrique Ancorena's estate at La Boqueron. What can you tell us about that? Well, Boqueron was a, uh, a, a private course. It was actually a, a nine-hole course that had been laid out by um, the, the Englishman Percy Boomer um, in uh, the early 1920s. And uh, when um, the family learned that Mackenzie um, um, was, uh, was in Argentina, they contacted him through some intermediaries, I think other family members that were actually uh, uh, on the committee of the jockey club, and they got Mackenzie to uh, agree to come out and, and visit El Bocaron uh, with a view to redesigning the golf, uh, the existing course. There's some suggestion initially that, that um, this was a totally new course. It was actually a redesign of an existing course that Percy Boomer had uh, designed for them. And... Um, Mackenzie uh, created a, a, a mini um, a mini old course for them, essentially uh, double greens, um, quite fantastic uh, design, beautifully rendered, drawn up by uh, um, Adrian Klein uh, back in England, and then the plans were sent back out to uh, uh, back out to South America, and the plan through some fortuitous digging by um, uh, uh, an American uh, golf professional in uh, who was living and working in uh, Buenos Aires. Um, he was able to, to 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 source this plan, and it was quite a remarkable find. Uh, even the uh, the guest book with Mackenzie's signature in it, uh, um, they were able to find. So um, quite uh, quite remarkable. But yeah, certainly golf in in the nineteen twenties in Argentina was. Uh, was booming. Uh, Mackenzie did other designs there as well. Club Mar del Plata, a 27-hole design. Club Nautico San Isidro on the River Plate. Um, he uh, designed a, a very elaborate 18-hole course that even included his um, a hole remarkably similar to his um, uh, Lido uh, design. But unfortunately, the, the River Plate was really not the um, location for this and they had massive flooding problems. And um, uh, Luther Kuntz, who was um, uh, the engineer from Wendell Miller, uh, Miller's organisation, uh, Miller was the, uh, the, the man who built um, Augusta National for, uh, uh, for, for Bobby Jones and Mackenzie. 
uh, Luther Kuntz was sent out with Mackenzie to South America, um, uh, essentially with the commission to build the, uh, the jockey club, build the two courses in, in a matter of months. Uh, but he did uh, lots of other work and eventually stayed in South America um, and became another Mackenzie disciple as a golf course architect. So, you know, we've got them everywhere, Australia, um, Ireland to via uh, uh, America uh, and even America into South America. So, uh, yeah, his, his influence was, uh, as you said, significant. Yeah, you've set up a nice little segue there in, into uh, the uh, you for well done <laughs> into the Augusta National uh, section. Uh, we won't labour too long on this, but given that the next men's major is the Masters tournament, I figure it would be remiss of me not for us to take a quick look at the development of Augusta National. The story of Bobby Jones playing both Cypress Point and Paso Tiempo in 1929 while in California for the US Amateur is well told. Common belief was that Jones chose Mackenzie as his preferred collaborator at what was the Berkman's fruit farm at this point in time. I was interested to read in a Golf Digest article in 2021 that it seems that accepted wisdom may not quite tell the whole story. What can you tell us about the letter that Bobby Jones sent to Sir Guy Campbell, who was another British golf course architect in December 1930? Well... I believe that this letter does not refer to Augusta. So Jones refers in his letter or mentions in his letter that he's considering purchasing an interest in a hotel and resort project that has an existing 400-room hotel near Atlanta and it already has two golf courses and he wants to build a new championship course to go with it. So I believe the assumption of the Golf Digest article that this refers to Augusta National is not right. So it's clickbait is what you're saying. Well, I don't know if they did it as clickbait, but I think their assumption that the project is automatically Augusta National. Well, firstly, Augusta didn't have an existing 400-room hotel on it and certainly didn't have two existing golf courses. So, and it's not really near Atlanta either. So, um, I think it's very likely this reference is to another investment opportunity that Bobby Jones ultimately didn't uh, go ahead with. So I, I think it's a furphy, and I, I don't think um, Jones was uh, uh, we were certainly corresponding with Sir Guy Campbell and wanted to give him an opportunity on this other project, but um, it wasn't Augusta. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Crafter. That clears that up 100%. You know, prior to his death in January 1934, Mackenzie was completing the manuscript for a second book while also trying to extricate the balance of his design fees from Clifford Roberts and the Augusta National Golf Club. The aforementioned manuscript was lost. However, it was unearthed in the 1990s by Mackenzie's step-grandson, Ray Haddock, what can you tell us about this find and what we now know as the Spirit of St. Andrews was eventually published some 60 years after its initial completion? Well, I think Mackenzie had certainly finished the manuscript before he died. Um, he had given some parts of it to Golfton magazine. Herb Graffus was the editor and they eventually published um, some extracts shortly after Mackenzie's death. So I think his manuscript was essentially complete. And um, you, you mentioned 
that he was trying to uh, get the balance of his design fees. That's actually the most of his design fees out of Augusta National because I think um, from memory, I think he was probably only paid about 30% of what he was due and he was owed something like 70% uh, of his fees. So it was quite a significant amount. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, Mackenzie's last, uh, um, last few years were uh, financially um, uh, fraught for him. Um, you know, he, he wrote um, to, um, to Clifford Roberts that uh, he was having to uh, play with a Woolworths golf ball rather than a, anything decent because he just couldn't afford a, a, a new golf ball even. So um, he, he, he suffered badly, um, unfortunately, in the, the last few years of his life financially. But, um, you know, that's really a case of probably most of the country suffering uh, um, through the early 1930s with the impact of the, of the Great Depression. As far as the story of, I'm not exactly certain where Ray um, found the, 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 the manuscript, um, but I think obviously it was in um, some of his father's um, uh, belongings and he recognised it for what it was and um, eventually he, um, he published it. And, um, you know, it was a great success and, uh, uh, you know, it... Um, you know, it really takes on, you know, from um, his first book, Golf Andrew, uh, Golf Architecture, and um, really expounds on on a whole lot of uh, different subjects. So yeah, it's a it's a fantastic book, and and it's amazing how valid it is still is now. Probably interchange Walter Hagen for Severiano Ballesteros um, or Tiger Woods or w- whatever it might be, but. The, the lessons that are in that book are still very, very relevant to today. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a book that's um, stood the test of time. Mackenzie certainly had a view back then and even earlier that the golf ball was travelling too far and, um, you know, it's still the case today. Uh, I think he would be... Um, You'd be shocked at how far the golf ball travels um, uh, today, but he, in some ways, I don't think you'd be surprised either. In closing your Mackenzie exposition, Neil, I'd like to understand how you would assess Mackenzie's design legacy, and whether and how it still reverberates today. Well, I think um, it certainly still reverberates today, and uh, I, I think um, you know the interest in in Mackenzie um, and his work has really never been higher. And uh, um, certainly his design legacy um, has stood the test of time. And, um, you know, there, there are many golf courses that, that, that Mackenzie designed that are at the pinnacle of, of our understanding of what a beautiful, um, well-designed nature incorporating um, golf course should be. Um, Cypress Point is a classic uh, case in point. Um, certainly a collaboration between Mackenzie and Robert Hunter. You know, Hunter had to put a lot of the work on the ground while Mackenzie was uh, uh, was travelling. But uh, the the concept that, that that they had 
and the journey that the golf course takes you on, um, you know, a landscape journey. And it's, it's really a beautiful, evocative trip around a magnificent site that uh, asks you to play some, um, some great golf uh, shots to uh, uh, make bars and, or even birdies on it. So I, I think his legacy is stronger than ever. And, um, you know, we, we're doing our best and I'm doing my best to, to try and educate golfers about uh, Mackenzie and his life and his work. And, uh, you know, I, I see that as um, certainly part of my, uh, uh, my mantra is to, to spread the word about Mackenzie and um, what, he, what he did for golf and um, um, what he means to it today. Regular listeners will know, Neil, that all of my guests get asked the same final two questions. So our penultimate question for today relates to your golf course bucket list. You might let us know what five courses appear in your bucket list. It can be less than five. It can be more than five. You've plenty of rope here. So, As in bucket um, lists that I haven't played yet or bucket lists that I want to play again before I die? Well, Either, either or. Is it return visits or indeed places that you haven't played? So wh- whatever, you can interpret it to interpret that question however you wish. Okay, well, uh, well look, I haven't played Augusta National and um, as a McKenzie aficionado, I would like to at least have that ticked off my bucket list. Um, I've been fortunate enough to, um, to visit Cypress Point a couple of times, but I would gladly... Um, take another trip there uh, uh, any day. Um, Muirfield has always been one of my favourite uh, courses in the UK and I'd love to go there again and um, certainly um, um, uh, Lahinch is high on my list of uh, courses and I have to have to I'd, have, I'd be remiss if I didn't include an Irish uh, course in, in uh, this podcast. Um, good answer, Neil. Good answer. Good answer, and um, you know, I, I, I always enjoy uh, a, a visit to Royal Melbourne and to Kingston Heath, and so that probably round out those uh, um, those courses. I might have listed six, but uh, you might excuse me. That's okay. That's co- okay. I, I forgive you. Thank I you. forgive you. Final final question relates to two golf book recommendations that any golfer should have in their golfing library? Well, as a simple, easy to read book, I can't go past Dr. McKenzie's Golf Architecture. The 13 points uh, are certainly well worth um, reading and understanding McKenzie's core philosophy. So I'd highly recommend that. And the other book that I've always enjoyed reading is... uh, uh, Weathered and Simpsons, the architectural side of golf. I really like the the themes that uh, are developed in the various chapters between Simpson and Weathered, and uh, um, yeah, I, I I love that book. So they would be my two. Excellent, Neil. Well, listen, before we let you go, you might just tell listeners how they might be able to keep tabs on crafter and mugford golf strategies and indeed neil crafter himself uh well you can certainly follow us on uh, on facebook uh crafter and mugford and uh i think my partner paul is on instagram although i'm not um we we do have a website so if you search crafter and mugford um you should find us so uh um, that should give you a little bit of an idea about our uh, 
um, about our golf design activities. So uh, um, please get in touch if you do. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure to host you on the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. On behalf of the listeners, I'd like to extend our thanks to you for your time today and wish you continued success in your historical, architectural and writing endeavours. Go easy. Cheers. Thank you, Shane. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.